quotes that I have up here on the screen. The first one is up here written by, uh, or at least spoken by, uh, Willard Scott. Now everybody remembers Willard Scott. He was the weatherman. Some of these young whippersnappers may not remember uh, Willard Scott, but he was the weatherman on NBC for a number of years. He said, now that I'm a grandfather myself, I realize that the best thing about having grandkids is that you get the kid for the best part of the ride. Kind of like owning the car for the first 10,000 miles. You can have your grandchildren for a couple of days and then turn them back over to their parents. So, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good thing sometimes when you, when you think about grandkids. Maybe we don't have as much energy as we used to have when we had our own children, but, but he's pretty well right with that, isn't he? And then here's another quote by a man by the name of Gene Perrette. He says, uh, he was a comedy writer, he says, What a bargain grandchildren are. I can give them my loose change, and in return, I get a million dollars worth of pleasure. That's pretty well true, too. You know, it doesn't take much for your grandchildren. I'm sure as they get older, uh, that loose change has to be a little bigger, but uh, and, uh, as it goes through life, you know, that, that does give you the joy as well. And then here is one more by Donald Norberg. He was a... Uh, a political guy back in the 1960s, and he had this to say. He said, Surely two of the most satisfying experiences in life must be those of being a grandchild or a grandparent. I believe he's pretty well right as, uh, in his words as well. These are indeed some of the best times of your life. I can remember when I was growing up spending time with my grandfather and going out and working on the farm and doing all these things with him and, and him letting me learn to drive, you know, sitting beside him and steering the car and doing all of those kinds of things. It was an enjoyable time. I learned so much. And I'm enjoying the same with my own grandchildren, you know. as Every time we get to see them, we, we try to do something together and try to help them learn a little bit of something. And, and that's an enjoyable thing. And so I believe Mr. Norberg is right as well. And you have your own experiences with that. But then there is this quotation that is sometimes uh, spoken. Grandparents have one thing God doesn't have, and that is grandchildren. Now let that one sink in for a minute. Grandparents have one thing that, that God doesn't have, and that's grandchildren. And yet there are some who seem to think that God is some sort of a grandfather and that we are indeed his grandchildren. Now, I want you to be honest with me this morning, those of you who are grandparents. You know, when, when it comes to your grandchildren, do they get away with a little bit more than what you let your child get away with? Now, now, that's not saying that you don't correct them and help them out, but, but sometimes, you know, we sort of have uh, eased up a little bit. We're, we're a little looser with, uh, with the rules than we were when our own children were growing up. And, and some people, it seems, tend to think that God is that way. That, that we're his grandchildren, that he is some old geezer, if you will, and I don't want to sound disrespectful, but, but he is some old man who, who now really doesn't uh, allow uh, anything to bother him, and he will just let anything go in life. 
We're his grandkids, and so we can get away with more than, than anybody else in life. We can just get by with it. It just goes in one ear, out the other, and, and things look, <coughs> don't really make a difference to him. Anything goes is the mentality of many. You know, we can read about some of these folks in the New Testament. That's the kind of people that Jesus is dealing with in the book of John, chapter 8. In John chapter 8, beginning at verse 31 and going through verse 33, the Bible says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, he said, uh, uh, goes on and says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered and said to him, We are the offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, you will become free. You see, the Jews in Jesus' day, even though they were under the, uh, the thumb of the Romans, even though they hated the fact that the Romans had conquered their land and taken over and were charging them taxes and doing all of these things, they still wanted to claim, well, well we have never been enslaved to anyone. We, there's no need for us to be free, and the reason for that is we're Abraham's offspring. And if we're Abraham's offspring, then that means truly we've got to be grandchildren of God because was not Abraham one of the friends of God, the sons of God, the father of the faithful, and all of these things? We must be the grandchildren of of God. Some Jews said to Jesus, we've got Abraham as our father. You know, John the baptizer had dealt with some of these folks prior to that. They had sort of the same tendencies when they were dealing with him. We remember the Bible says in the book of Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it speaks about the, the birth of, uh, of John in the first part of Luke, and then we have John beginning his ministry, and, and we know, <coughs> know that he is uh, spoken about uh, in the Old Testament as being the one who would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And we find in the book of Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, that's exactly what's happening. Here is this one who is crying out in the wilderness... Uh, that the, the Savior was coming, the Messiah was coming, and, and people were coming to Him to be baptized of Him. Something new, something that had not as yet been required, but John was preaching this, and, and so people were hearing and they were coming out. And then in the book of Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, we have these words, He said therefore to the crowds that came to, out to be baptized by Him, he said, you brood of vipers. Now, Brother Jeff read this passage for us earlier today, and so we're not going to re take time to read it all again right at this moment, but, but you remember what he said when he read it? He calls them a brood of vipers and then has some other things to say to them. And one of the things that he deals with in, in talking to them is the fact that they had a tendency to say, look, if you will, there in verse number 8, uh, don't begin to say, he says, we're the sons of Abraham. We're the children of Abraham. We have Abraham as our father. Now later on, Jesus would deal with that, but now John's dealing with it. He says, don't even try that. Don't even think about that we have Abraham as our father, therefore we must be the grandchildren of God. 
As you think about these folks, I want to call your attention again to how he, how he, how he started that out. He had some pretty strong words. He says, you are the, the, the sons of Abraham. Or, or he says to them, he says, uh, you brood of vipers, you people who are thinking these things. Matthew chapter 3, verse number 7 tells us a little bit more about who John was speaking to. In the book of Luke, he just tells us the Jews were coming out. But in the book of Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew's account, Matthew tells us more specifically to whom John was speaking. He saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, and he said to them, you brood of vipers. It wasn't everyone who was out, who was listening to John, who, who had the ideas that some people in the crowd had. There were some who were different. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who really didn't get along with each other uh, most of the time, they, they were willing to come together in order to, to, to speak against and to fight against, if you will, people like Jesus, and in this case, here, against John. And so when John is speaking to them and talking about them being a brood of vipers, he's speaking about their insincerity that he is able to see within them. Here are a bunch of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they did not really care about being baptized. They were out to see what was going on. They were out to protect the power that they had. They were out to stand for the, uh, the Old Testament law, the Jewish law, and no one was going to take away their place or their power. They were insincere, and John was able to see that. And so as he looked out, he saw not just the crowds who were coming here, who, who included tax collectors and others who were, who were coming out to be baptized and gladly hearing what he had to say. He looks out and he sees this group of people and he calls them a brood of vipers. He asks them, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, these people who were just there because of their insincerity to, to uh, uh, try to stop John and his popularity, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Basically saying, why are you here? Why are you here? Because it's certainly not for the right reason. There was wrath to come. We read about that in the book of Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 when the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah would come, he'd be warning them about the wrath. Uh, same is taught in the book of Malachi chapter 4 verse number 5. Behold, I'll send Elijah the prophet before you. The, the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, the one that was spoken of back in chapter 3. And we do know that according to Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that, that John the baptizer is identified as that Elijah who was to come. And so when John asked them about who warned you about the wrath to come, there was a wrath to come. God would destroy the city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants in just a few years in A.D. 70. And certainly for those who are disobedient to God, we will face the wrath of God on the day of judgment. 
But he said, who warns you to come? Nobody told you to come. Nobody um, convinced you that wrath was coming and you're here out of insincerity. You see, the one thing that they really needed to do, but they were unwilling to do because they were insincere, the one thing that they were really needing to do but unwilling to do was to repent. They needed to change their life. They needed to change their ways, their actions, their thoughts, the way that they uh, treated other people. And so no wonder he would say in Luke chapter 3, verse number 8, bring fruits in keeping with repentance. Here's some people who needed to change. I want you to follow along with me this morning. When John makes that statement that they needed to repent, basically bring fruits that are fitting of repentance in keeping with repentance, what is it that he's telling them to do? You know, if you were to pass around a piece of paper this morning and get people to write what is repentance or define repentance, a lot of folks would have a lot of different things that they would write down. And I'm going to tell you this morning, some of them would be outstanding. Some of them would be thoughts that, that you know, sometimes we as preachers don't even get to think, and, and, and so they would have a good thing. But then you may get something like this. Well, repentance is walking down the church aisle and asking for prayers. I hate to disagree with you, but that's not quite it. It's not just because somebody takes a little trip down, makes a few steps up to the front of a church building. That's not what repentance is. Somebody might say, well, okay, preacher, you got me on that one. I understand that. It's not because you walked down the aisle, but it's because you were crying when you came. It's because of the grief that you have in your heart. You are sorry for what you've done in, our, in sinning against God. Well, I hate to disagree, but I'd probably have to disagree with you again. Because in the book of 1 Corinthians, or rather 2 Corinthians, we understand that repentance is not just being sorry for sinning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, at verse number 10, you see the Bible says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You can be sorry that you got caught, you can be sorry that you did it, but that doesn't mean you've repented. You can be sorry that you did something that sinned against God, against your fellow man, brother, sister, husband, wife, you know, some other family member or, or neighbor or something. You can be sorry that you did it, and that will lead you to repentance, but that's not the repentance. And so shedding the tears as you walk down the aisle, crying, being, ha having grief in your heart, being sorry for what you did is not the repentance. It's just the first step in repentance. And so these people, it seems, they weren't sorry for anything that they had done, nor were they willing to turn. Because you see, that's the second thing. For in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 at verse number 9, and I didn't change the verse up there, but for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from 
serving idols. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You see, repentance involves turning from something to something. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning so that you serve God. It it changes the course of your life. It changes the actions that you perform. It changes the attitudes that you have toward people. You see, that's what John was calling on these folks to do. They were insincere. They were coming out there. He called them a brood of vipers. He said, what you really need to do is repent. They weren't willing to repent because they weren't sorry, nor were they willing to turn from the ways that they had. They would continue on in those ways until they crucified Jesus, who was preaching the same thing. You know, that brings me to another question, another thought in my mind, and and that's this. Why would these people refuse to repent? Why would they refuse to turn? Why would they refuse to change their life? You, You would think that any man who was able to hear John the baptizer preach, that they would automatically change their life. And if they didn't listen to John, surely when Jesus came... Surely when they saw people who were healed, who, were, who had been sick, people who didn't have arms and legs, that the Lord provided one for them, uh, a man who could walk on water, a man who could stand at a graveyard and say, come out of the grave and people would get up, you would think surely they had changed their mind about him and about their life and the way that they live, but they didn't. I think we have a clue as to why some of these folks didn't repent, especially the ones to whom John is speaking here that he calls a a brood of vipers because of who they are. Think about the fact that the Bible says that he called the Pharisees and the Sadducees the brood of vipers. And I would suggest to you this morning that the Pharisees were people who already believed they were good enough. And as a result of that, there was no need for them to change. Now you see on the screen some verses down at the bottom. Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 12, there's a man who is identified as a Pharisee, a man who is identified as a a tax collector, and the tax collector is so humble and so... Uh, prayerful to God, asking God to forgive him, not even willing to lift up his eyes, but in contrast to that, you have a Pharisee. I'm not saying it was one of the same people who was out there listening to John, but he was of the same mindset, and he's telling God, look at all I've done. Look at how I give, how I tithe, how I do all of these good things, And Lord, I am thankful that I'm not like this wicked man who's standing over here. I am good enough already. You know, when you believe you're good enough already, there's really no need for you to make any difference in your life. Some people may say, well, I don't believe I'm any better than anybody else, but I'm at least as good as they are. And that's the mentality, the attitude that we have, and sometimes we hear that about 
other folks at church. I'm as good as they are. Let me remind you of what the Bible says in Luke chapter 17 at verse number 10. This is the kind of attitude when we've done all that we're commanded to do, we're still to say that we're unworthy servants. What we've done is only what we are required to do. It's only our duty. We're still unworthy servants. And I would remind you this morning that if you are trying to be justified on your own merit just by saying, well, I'm as good as everybody else or I'm good enough already, I'd remind you of James chapter 2, verse number 10. For in that passage, the Bible tells us whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable of all of it. Now in that context, he's talking about keeping the Old Testament law, but wasn't that really what it was all about under the Old Testament? They were to perfectly keep the commands that God had laid out for them. Rabbis say that there were about 613 of them. We think about the Ten Commandments, about 613 that you can count in the Old Testament. But if you messed up on one of them, that whole law was coming down on you. We don't need to be making that argument. Well, I'm as good, or I'm good enough already, or I'm as good as everybody else. Because it's not going to hold up. And so the Pharisees seem to think that. There's really no need for me to repent because I'm good enough already. But then there were the Sadducees who were out there that John called a brood of vipers who, who truly believed that, well, we are, we are Abraham's offspring. We're children of Abraham. Therefore, we must be the offspring or the grandchildren of God. And those Sadducees, rather, tended to believe that it really didn't matter anyway. It really didn't make any difference. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, in the book of Acts, chapter 23, in verse number 8, as the Apostle Paul is confronting the Jews and, and there's a commotion that's going on, there's some things that are said, but here's a verse that you need to remember. The Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. What about the Sadducees again? No resurrection, no angel, no spirit. You see, the Sadducees deep down truly believed that there was no afterlife at all. It's just like old Rover. When we're dead, we're dead all over. There's nothing else left. And so really it doesn't matter. Sadducees were some of the wealthy folks. And so they gained a lot of wealth. They gained their their gratification from life. And it didn't make any difference who they stepped on. It really doesn't matter. Because there's nothing else to come. I'd remind you of the book of Luke, chapter 16, two men, one who's identified as a rich man, the other one who is identified by the name Lazarus, and they both died. And if you're familiar with that story, you understand that both of them recognized beyond any shadow of a doubt, there is an afterlife. 
And it does matter what you do here. What about Luke chapter 23, verse 43? Jesus himself alluded to the afterlife as he was hanging on the cross. A penitent thief beside him says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, Today you will be with me. You will be with me in paradise. Jesus hinted at, alluded to the afterlife. Sadducees, though, thought it really didn't matter. What about you today? Are you like one of these two in your life? I'm as good as anybody else and everybody else. Do we compare ourselves and our our life to them and say, I'm good enough? Or are we like the Sadducees? Do we say, well, you know, I really just don't grasp this whole soul and spirit and afterlife thing. And I really don't hang on to it, so I'm content to live like I am. I want to tell you something. We, We don't want to be like that. We don't want to live our life like that. We don't want to have to stand before God like that, thinking that, well, I'm his grandchild, so everything will be taken care of. Not something that I want to do, and I'm sure you don't either. Book of John, chapter 8, verse 39. The Bible says, They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, Well, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. In other words, if you were really Abraham's children, you'd be acting like Abraham because he would have taught you better. In the book of Luke, chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, uh, I would say write that down and go back and read it a little bit later, but, but what happens is John expands on what he says about the repentance part Uh, the crowds began to ask him, well, what then shall we do? And he begins to tell them, you know, here's some things you need to do. Uh, He says, whoever uh, has food is to do likewise. Uh, uh, The one who has two tunics is to share, and uh, the one who has food is to share. And uh, Notice he speaks about the life that they're living. These are tax collectors, some of them who had come out there. They had been piling money up. And and now he says, hey, there's this change in your life. This is the way you need to be. In other words, there's that idea of being like Abraham, doing what Abraham did. You see, if you're really going to be like Abraham or to be his children, we must obey like he did. And that's brought out in so many passages of Scripture. The book of James, chapter 2, verse 21. Abraham is specifically mentioned in verse 21. And then down in verse 22, uh, he says, You see that his faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. His life matched what he professed. And that's the way our life must be. As we bring this lesson to a close this morning, let me remind you again of what is said in the book of Luke, chapter 3, verse number 8. 
That's the passage where he says, bear fruits, fruits that are in keeping with repentance. And, and then look one more time, because I've emphasized it on this slide for us. Look one more time at what John says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In the dictionary, the Bible dictionary, there's this word, this uh, comment that's made in regard to the word that's used there, where, where he says, "Do not begin to say, do not even begin to say, make not even an attempt to excuse yourselves." I'd say it like this: Don't even try it. Don't even try the argument that we're God's grandchildren because we have Abraham as our father. They had him as their father in the ancestral lineage. They were his descendants, you know, from, uh, from his sons, but they sure didn't act like him. Don't even try it because God will not accept it. The people around you won't buy it. You have no business even trying to convince yourself of the same. Some people don't try it with Abraham. They try it like this. Well, I'm an American. Or my mama went to church. Or, and then you fill in the blank. You see, I need to be living my life for Christ every day single day because God has no grandchildren we're either his children or we're not and we can be his child we can be his son or his daughter today and that's the marvelous thing we can be born into the family of God through baptism the new birth John chapter 3 Maybe you're here today and you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's stopping you? It's Grandparents' Day, and I realize our sermon hasn't been on grandparents or grandchildren in the flesh, but it's the way we sometimes act. Don't you want to be a child of God rather than attempting to be a grandchild? and miss out on the opportunities that await you in the Father's house, John chapter 14. Maybe you're here and there's something amiss in your life. You've been a Christian in the past, but your life is not right with God. And you need, like these people, to repent of something that's amiss. Whatever your need may be, if we can assist you this morning, come right now. As together we stand, as we sing. Nothing but the blood of